0: Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Welcome to everyone tonight for this uh, broadcast of a scripture study on the parable of the Good Samaritan from the 10th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. Welcome to the youth of St. Paul's in Bendigo and to the youth further afield in our Coptic Diocese of Melbourne and uh, other areas. Uh, I should say at the beginning of the talk, if you have any questions to ask, you can put them on the live stream and they'll be picked up here, and then I'll see if I can answer them afterwards. For those here in Bendigo, we have a pad going around a pen. You may write any questions you may have, and I'll attempt to deal with them at the end of this particular talk. Well, tonight, I thought we'd choose an extensive parable, perhaps the best-known parable in the New Testament, and yet it only appears in the Gospel according to St. Luke. It is, of course, the parable of the Good Samaritan, And I guess that there are different interpretations, but there's one kind of overarching interpretation or understanding of the parable that people seem to have. And it's about doing good to anybody who's in need. And and generally speaking, that's not far off the mark, what the parable is about. But what we'll do first of all, I'll read through it slowly and then we'll start to take it apart piece by piece. It's not difficult to understand at all. And we should understand that when Jesus speaks in parables or in metaphors or in picture language, telling stories, he's using this particular medium as a means of getting a spiritual truth across. I should preface the reading of this by setting the scene. According to St Luke's Gospel, uh, Jesus had sent out seventy-two disciples to preach the coming of the kingdom of God, and he'd rejoice when they'd returned home and seen that. They had been largely successful in announcing the kingdom. and He gives thanks to God. And at this point, that's chapter 10 of Luke's Gospel, verse 25 and following, a lawyer stood up. Now, a lawyer is, according to uh, the New Testament, a lawyer is not a lawyer in civil law. It's somebody who's learned in Torah, in the law of Moses, somebody who spends their life giving legal uh, religious decisions on how to interpret the law of God as it applies to particular Jewish people. So somebody who should know the scriptures very, very well. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test and said, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He said to him you've answered correctly do this and you will live now that would seem to be a proper point at which to end the story but of course it goes on the key to it is in the next words but he that is the lawyer desiring to justify himself said to jesus and who is my neighbor that might seem to be a rather simple question jesus replied Man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbour to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy? jesus said you go and do likewise so we're really back to the beginning again aren't we the lawyer who was well-versed apparently in the scriptures certainly knew the two great commandments that jesus had summed up earlier in the gospel one from deuteronomy 6 5 you shall love the lord your god with your heart soul mind and strength and the second from leviticus 19 you shall love your neighbors yourself Strictly understood, religiously understood, your neighbour was your brother and sister, Jew, Jewess, those who were (coughs) part of your group who worshipped the one true God. However, Leviticus 19 also contains the following commandment. When a stranger travels with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who travels with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of egypt i am the lord your god so there was definitely a commandment in the old testament in the law of moses to care and love for the stranger for goodness sake there was even a commandment that if your ox fell into a ditch even on the sabbath you were to do something about it out of compassion for the animal how much more so for another human who bears the image and likeness of god Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What a trick question that's asked. And It's a trick question because it comes out four verses later in verse 29. The lawyer desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, who is my neighbor. And Jesus tells this extraordinary story of a man who was not expected to be a neighbor to a Jewish person, being the very one who acted like a brother. Not only acted like a brother, actually saved the man's life. Now, we'll go through a bit by bit, and the meaning becomes very, very clear. So, the question is, Who is my neighbor? And that's what elicits the parable. The man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, Jer- Jerusalem is about 3,000 feet above sea level, and Jericho is about 900. So, it's a 2,000 feet drop. That's a lot of height to drop in 17 miles. So, the road is it literally goes down. And it goes down and it's full of precipice sharp bends and still like that today and it's perfect country for robbers to hide out in now remember it's a parable this never happened but jesus is taking well-known places and associating a story with them so they would immediately get the picture oh yes we know the road to jericho we know it's a dangerous road to go on now he fell among robbers They stripped him, they beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now in the Greek, when it says they beat him, it all it means they kept on beating him. It's like they nearly beat him to death. It was a terrible beating this fellow had. They left him half dead. Now just by chance, Jesus says a priest saw him and he passed by on the other side, and likewise a Levite. The priest was the one who worked in the temple offering sacrifice and offering prayers to the Lord. And the Levite was also a member of the priestly tribe, but but not of the family of Aaron. So the Levite was like a deacon in the temple. He assisted with the sacrifices. He assisted with all kinds of cleaning duties and putting offerings in order. Both people who we would assume uh, should know the law of God and should act appropriately given the situation. But the key to it is this. The samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him he had compassion now the samaritans were a mixed breed people who came from the old northern kingdom of israel and at the time of jeroboam the wicked king when the assyrians took the kingdom the samaritan and the assyrians bought in foreigners the jews who were left there intermarried and they polluted their religion in fact they built a temple on mount gerizim and that's why the woman at the well asks Jesus, uh, Should we worship on our mountain or in Jerusalem? For they say salvation comes of the Jews. So the temple in Gerizim was still there, though the Druze tried to destroy it about 148 uh, BC before Christ. Sacrifice is still offered there to this day, though there's no temple. There are Samaritan priests that uh, are still offering animal sacrifices there. They're kind of half Jewish. Now, Samaritans are seen as foreigners, traitors who've intermarried, worshippers of other gods, because they had included other gods in their worship originally. They're seen, it's the last person you would ever expect to show compassion. Now, when we look at the history of the interpretation of this particular parable, there are several methods you can look at. One of the methods the early fathers loved to do and play mental gymnastics with <clears throat> is called the allegorical myth. In other words, it looks at the parable, it takes it apart and explains each part of the parable with a particular meaning, such as uh, Jerusalem is the city of God, Jericho is coming down into the world, the man is coming down, carried on Christ, who is the, the one who carries humanity. He's assailed by uh, robbers along the road who are demons, etc., etc. And this is uh, fanciful, nice and completely wrong. And the reason I say that is because the parable is not about that at all. The parable is about this other man, this lawyer's attitude towards the law of God and seeking to justify himself. In fact, it's something St. Paul addresses in Romans 3 when he preaches the great uh, gospel of God's righteousness. That it's God's righteousness that puts us right with him, not our own works of the law. Romans 3.28 We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So our right standing with God is not our own doing. It is in fact the work of Christ upon the Holy Cross and our faith in that work. Okay. So the Samaritan comes along and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now the word compassion is a beautiful word. Literally means he suffers with. In other words, he is fulfilling the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. Now the Samaritans hated the Jews as well. That's why the reception of Jesus in Samaria is in fact an extraordinary thing when he speaks to the woman of the world. Remember, she goes back and tells her brethren and her friends in the village, look here, come and meet a man. He told me everything I ever did. The Jews had thrown an accusation at Christ in John 8:48. Uh, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and that you have a demon? That accused him of being a half breed of being not a worshipper of the true God and of, in fact, being demon-possessed. Not the only time they would. I do not have a demon, Jesus says. I honour my father and you dishonour me. I honour my heavenly father. So the Samaritan sees him and has compassion he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Now that seems strange to us today, but in the ancient world, oil was not only a symbol of mercy; even the word in Greek, elios, covers for, for mercy as well as the word for oil. But it has healing properties. It softens the skin, softens the wound, and wine, of course, is like a sort of like an antiseptic. Fermented wine with alcohol cleans out the wound. So that's what it is about: pouring oil and wine on the wounds trying to soothe his skin to calm things down. And when it says here in the Greek, it says pouring on oil and wine, the word literally means lavishly pouring it on, not just a few drops, but giving everything, doing everything to meet this particular man's need. And that's the whole point of the parable, is the one who is completely unexpected to do good is the one who does good. And that is a kind of a a threat To the sensitivities of the lawyer who is supposedly studied in the law of moses not only that he sets him on his own animal and brings him to an inn and takes care of him and the next day he took out two denarii which equals two days wages two days wages it's worth okay takes out two denarii and gives them to the innkeeper saying take care of him and whatever more you spend i'll repay you when i come back my Lord, he's giving this guy a blank check. In other words, let him book up whatever he needs. I'll cover him. I'll cover him. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbour to the man who fell among robbers? So rather than answering directly the question, who is my neighbour, he puts it back on the lawyer and says, well, who do you think? Who do you think is the neighbour? And the answer is obvious, isn't it? It's the one who does good. It's the one who pours lavishly of his own substance and t- puts himself out of his own uh, comfort. And it says, he take that note of that as well. It says, he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii. In other words, he stayed with him that night. He keeps vigil with him. He keeps vigil. Now, some of us rush to come to church and do vigils in the church. How many of us would sit with each other or with anybody when they're in deep need? Even in silence. You see what I mean? Our faith is something which is tactile, can be touched, something fleshly, something human. Why? Because we believe as Christians, God became man. That he filled our humanity with holiness in order to call us to a deeper life in Christ. Of whom he is the perfect example. He said, the one who showed him mercy. So he recognizes, the lawyer recognizes, what does mercy look like? Well, mercy looks like this. It looks like putting yourself out, breaking your routine in order to help somebody else. That's what it looks like. It looks like giving more than just a dollar in the collection plate. Giving more, giving until it hurts. And Jesus' response to him is, Go and do likewise. Now this this particular event has echoes of the event with the rich young man who comes to Jesus and asks him, What should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response to him is to get into tell the commandments like this man does, and then says, You only have to do one thing, go sell all you have, give to the poor and come follow me. And he couldn't do it. He was another man trying to put himself right with God on his own. You just can't do it. If we look at the quality of love that that man shows, the Samaritan shows, it's not something we can do all the time, is it? I just, We just can't do it. It's a perfect example it's set before us. And the glorious thing about being a Christian is we know someone who can. That's Jesus Christ himself. And we trust in him. And in our imitation of Christ, we become conformed more to the image and the likeness each time we participate in an act of love and mercy each time. And it's a wonderful example of the active life in Christ, of actually walking your faith into practice. Who is my neighbor? That's a ridiculous question. And we certainly shouldn't have to ask it, but we do. And we do it unconsciously because of the way we treat people. As human beings, we we segment and divide people In our own mind according usually to our own prejudices even our unconscious prejudices someone comes to the church who's different what's the first thing we do try to squash them in to our categories to fit our categories now there's a certain amount of that that has to happen people have to have to bow to each other that's fine but there's a kind of an expectation sometimes particularly among orthodox christians who have such a heavy weight of tradition It's such a there's such an expectation and the tradition uh, which is wonderful as a servant is in fact a wicked master because we easily use tradition to beat people with this lawyer was very traditional very orthodox right believing but he didn't get the point until Jesus had to point it out to him in the most simplistic story I mean really it's such a simple story you can't miss the point of it. And, of course, he doesn't. he's honest enough to say that. Of course, I can see why the early fathers saw allegory, picture story in this, and there is, of course there's some truth in that. You can't help but think of Christ as the good Samaritan, can you? He came to his own. What does the Bible say in John 1? He came to his own and his, his own did not receive him, but to as many as who believe in him. He gave power to become sons of God who were born not of the will of flesh nor of man, but of God. Isn't that amazing? He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But to as many as believed in Christ, he gave power to become sons. What does it mean, sons? It means heirs. That's all it means. It doesn't mean male or female. Become heirs of the kingdom of heaven. And that's all that Jesus came to show us. He came to show us the way to the Father's house, the way that we lost way back in Eden when our first parents sinned and walked out of the agreement, the covenant with God. Christ paid for us the cost of our healing, but he paid for us not with oil and wine, but with the blood of his own life upon the cross. Not only did he do that, but he left for us a sacrificial banquet to participate in the Holy Communion whereby he feeds us with that divine life still. And how tardy, how slack we are at times to attend or pay a notice or pay attention to the great mystery which is wrapped up. Sometimes I think, uh, last Sunday when I celebrated here, um, I wanted to draw the people's attention to the second of the prayer. The first is the prayer of reconciliation and the next one that follows that when the priest holds the, the veil up. I want to draw the people's attention to us. So just stop the mass and turn around and preach a sermon for three minutes on the depth and the meaning of that prayer and how we should take attention. That's before we give each other the kiss of peace. How important that is as Christians. We run the risk of becoming overly familiar with the spiritual practices we perform. And that's a problem with traditional churches because we keep following the same old rut. Sometimes we need to come along and just have a different route around things. I could uh, not count the number of times someone has said to me as an Australian priest in the Orthodox Church, the majority say, well, how pleased we are to have an Australian priest here because you see things very differently. We're Christian, we understand the same, of course, but have a different approach to things, a little more freed up, a little less bound by the tradition, able to make the tradition breathe to breathe life into it we have the most beautiful prayers in our liturgy but oftentimes we mumble through them and don't pay enough attention and sometimes we neglect the neighbor who's right next to us in the church have you ever been to church where people seem to deliberately avoid giving a sign of peace to someone because i have it's terrible yeah jesus is very clear if you've got something against your brother and you come to the altar leave your gift and go first, be reconciled. Because that's the great work of Christ, is reconciling humans to God and humans to humans. That really is important. Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I return. Well. Wow. Take care of him. This man's love for the man who fell among thieves is endless isn't it he's giving him a full deal of new life now some people look at the parable and they have a look at, well why did the priest cross on the other side of the road or why did the levi cross on the other side of the road well the simple answer is they're not real people <laughs> so we don't know why they just did it okay he could say, oh, it was because he didn't want to be polluted by a body and all this stuff. That's all nonsense. That's nonsense. In the end, it's because they just didn't want to do it. It's us. It's us. It's us who, who choose the lower path. And it says there, um, he passed by on the other side. It's like he ran to the other side of the rose. Literally, what it means he, he deliberately chose the other side to avoid it. You know, when things get tough in Christian life and we're called on to act in a courageous, loving way, we will often take the lower path. Someone great once said, people do what's most convenient and then they repent. I think there's a lot of truth in that, and I know that from my own life. There's only occasions when I can rise to the better angel of my nature and do something brave, something completely selfless. You see, it's very hard while living in the body to rise above it. And that's why I say to you, and I always say to people when they come to confession, never give up. Because you're not meant to be completely consistent. You're not meant to absolutely fulfill the law. You can't. God gives us such a law, it's impossible to keep it in its entirety. It's impossible. But that doesn't mean it shouldn't be aimed at. It means all the more we should keep trying. And surely this parable shows us that we are in need. We are wounded on the side of the road. We are bruised by our own sins and our own stupidities and folly. We are naked. We need the healing ointment of Christ that only he can give it to us. Who is my neighbour? Whoever is in need is my neighbour. Whoever is in need is my neighbour. And as Christ, and why? Because as Christ is to me, so I am to others. Otherwise, how does the life of Jesus Christ continue in the world? A remarkable parable a beautiful parable and one that takes us back to really the starting point of christian life the two commandments here israel the lord our god the lord is one you shall love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength the second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself and these two commandments hang all the law and prophets
1: these commandments
0: are what in fact give us life these commandments are a guarantee to show us how to live. When Moses was on the edge of the promised land and he read the law of God, recounted again in the book of Deuteronomy, he read out all the laws that God had given, laws which in fact were to be used to create a new society based on moral justice and the worship of the one true God. Moses said this. This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. That is, with all your life strength. You've declared today the Lord is your God. You will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and obey his voice. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession as he promised you. You are to keep all his commandments. He will set you in praise and fame in honor high above nations he has made you'll be a people holy to the lord your god as you promised he tells them to bind the commandments on their heads and in their hearts to write them on their doorposts to discuss them with their children to remember them because his commandments give life and if you love the lord your god you do receive life and if you love your neighbor as yourself you begin to live a life liberated from self-obsession and self-worship and selfishness so there we are the parable of the good samaritan we thank you lord for the gift of this wonderful parable which always reminds us that being religious is just about being human glory be to a god forever amen so we have a few questions here are there any on that computer thing um, not at the moment No, oh, that's okay, good. Well, wow, that's interesting. Okay. Right. <laughs> Coptic questions. Okay, first question. Does God have emotions? Well, that's a very good question. cardinal or a true doctrine of the nature of god is that he does not move, he cannot be moved nor be caused to move move he is the first mover in all creation he cannot be caused to move emotions sitting in motion is not something he does we have emotions the trouble with our emotions are they have a, a little crack in them and we tend towards Uh, passionate emotion. To say that God has emotions is not something that I would check the dogmatic books, but it's not something that God has. He has no human parts and yet in his humanity, Christ's emotions as he had them were perfected as God intended them to be. Yes, we can say in a sense, because we see it in the Old Testament that, that God repented of the things that he'd done, putting human picture language onto the divine. We have to speak in a way because we don't worship just a a sort of a a power or an entity called god as christians we believe god is personal he is tri-personal father son and holy spirit that's the way he relates to us as a loving father of his creation as a beloved son who comes to us as the medium between the father and us and as a spirit who lives in our hearts that's the way that we've always understood it to say that he has emotions in and of himself no No, he doesn't. To say that he does not move and uh, does not react to our needs, yes, he does, as he chooses, as he chooses and sees fit for us. So I think that's the clearest answer I can give on that. Number two, is it wrong to practice things such as meditation, for example, the Hindu way concept applied to everyday Christian life? Well, if you're practicing Hindu meditation, I'd say yes, for a Christian, it is wrong to practice Hindu meditation. Why? You're not Hindus. You're Christians. Meditation uh, is nothing wrong in itself. Something that brings you to contemplate, to quiet down, to slow down, and to meditate, to concentrate the mind on the things of heaven or things beyond yourself is a good thing. As Christians, we have our own forms of meditation. Particularly, I recommend the Jesus prayer, which is a repetition of the name of Jesus, or simply the prayer, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. Repeat it over and over again. Or even you can, even you can um, uh, read a psalm meditatively, that is to read a line at a time, quietly and gently, and let the words sink in. Sometimes I just come and I sit before the icon with the candle burning, and meditate, and as I go closer in my quietness and begin to calm down, ask the Holy Spirit to cast out all my emotion, my movement of my heart, and still me. It goes beyond the icon of the presence, and you reach a place of rest with God. It is possible to do it, but very difficult when you're doing your everyday life. If you wish to practice silent contemplation with God, there are certainly ways that you can do that. And as Christians, we always enter through the sacred name of our Lord, God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. He is our way, our truth and our life. So to use other non-Christian ways, no. Do they share something in common with us? Yes, they do. Anything that actually promotes um, people moving beyond a purely material view of their life has got something going for it. Now, this is a good one. This is a double banger. Same question asked in two different ways. Does God have a plan for all of us? How do I know God's plan for my life? Well, I've got a bit of a theory here, but I don't know if I'm right or not. There's something very noticeable to me in the Coptic Church in the eight years I've been in the church now, is the people almost have an obsession with God's plan. It's not noticeable in other churches at all, but I've come. Certainly not in other Orthodox churches. And I'm wondering, I don't know this, I haven't thought about it, but it'd be a good uh, thesis to, to study. Is this because the Middle Eastern Christians live in a predominantly Islamic society, which has a very strong tendency towards fatalism, that God's will is God's will, and you've got to find and it, that's it. I wonder, it's just a, just a thought I had. But does God have a plan for all of us? Yes, he does. What's God's plan for us? Well, I couldn't put it better than the old Roman catechism written hundreds of years ago said, why did God make you? He made me to no longer serve him in this life and to rejoice with him forever in the company of him. That's God's plan to get you to blessedness. Now, how that happens is very much up to you. How that happens is very much up to you. You need to participate with the Spirit of God in whatever situation you find yourself in life. If you're going to spend your life trying to work out, how is God's plan working out for me? Am I doing the right thing? Will it upset my Heavenly Father? Don't waste your energy. God wants you to choose what's best for you. And usually you will know what God's plan for you is. Is it moral, that's the first question you ask, is whatever in front of me, whatever activity, whatever job, whatever life situation. You know, is, is it kind of like God has one person for me to marry, and if I don't marry him, I'll never be happy. And then when things go on the marriage, well, it must have been someone else. Well, that's a recipe for uh, serial marriages, isn't it? You'd end up always thinking something wrong. It's not about that at all. We must see the plan of God for us as something which is overarching And something in which we live and move ourselves as free agents. And as free agents, we are free to choose to accept or to reject accordingly. And when we need advice for that, go to your priest and talk to him about certain situations. I mean, I know some of the Coptic priests are matchmakers. It's not something that I do. But if they know the community well enough, that may well be helpful. It could also be less than helpful in certain situations. I'll save you from that. How do I know God's will for my life? Usually, usually you know his will for your life in any given situation. There comes a peacefulness in the heart which is beyond emotion, a sense that yes, this is right. But that should be that should be checked out the spiritual father. Because it's easy to delude ourselves. Usually, usually we can fool ourselves quite easily. We can spend six months praying to God for a particular situation. And all we're doing is trying to force his arm up his back to make him give in and give us what we want. There's a lot of willfulness in prayer that we need to get rid of. A lot of willfulness, a lot of of praying with clenched fists. We need to pray with open hands. Why? Because when my hands are open, I carry no weapon to defend myself or to offend others. I am ready to receive blessings. How did Jesus die upon the Holy Cross? His whole body open to God to receive whatever. That's the attitude we take into prayer. That's why I love it amongst our Coptic Christians, maybe at least the Christians, when we pray, we pray with open hands. And it's open for business, open to receive blessings, open to give you Lord my fractured, broken life. Give it to you Lord like a child gives a father, a broken toy, fix it daddy, that's what we're looking for it's that intimate relationship with God that he wills us to have through Jesus Christ God is not a blob of energy or some great thing God is person and draws close to us as a heavenly father so God's plan for us does he have a plan? yes He wills that all men be saved. It's what you do with it that matters. How do I know his will? Test it. Test any given situation before you. God didn't sort of create human beings, put them on the planet and then sit back and laugh and say, now try to work out what I want you to do. That's not a God, that's an idol. That is a pagan idol. The idol has to be smashed. It's in us we want that. And see, the allure of paganism, the worship of false gods, is based on this notion that the gods are there to hurt me and I have to placate them and make them happy so I get what I want. I remember when, a young, when I was a young man, I used to work with a, a fellow who actually became my best man at a wedding. He's still alive. He's a wonderful man. Comes from Mauritius. And he used to tell me about uh, the horse races in Mauritius. And a lot of the Chinese used to go and bet on the horses. The Chinese love betting. I love numbers, you know, it's a love numbers, Asians. And um, they went to the horse races, and this guy would go along, he'd take his little idol of his God with him. And he'd go and pray to the God, go and put money on the horse. If it lost, he used to come back with a stick and hit the idol on the head. It was his way of paying out his God, because he didn't do what he wanted. Sometimes I think we do that with God. He didn't team me up with this guy and this girl, he didn't give me that job, he didn't give me the course I wanted. I'm not going to talk to you. We might say it in so many words, but we kind of withdraw. Because, you know, the, the, the root of all problems is grasping. Yeah? Grasping, clinging. The Buddhists have got that right. The cause of all suffering is clinging. Grasping onto something and not letting it go. Pray with open hands, not with clenched fists. You pray with open hands; you are open to receive everything that God has to give. Don't be closed for business; be open. Now that takes a big effort. Okay, this one says: In repentance, is repentance without confession alone sufficient for forgiveness of sins? Generally speaking, yes. Repentance. When you repent. For your sins, you know, you do something wrong. I'm not talking about small ticket stuff, like every day thinking, "Oh, you're a pain." I don't talk to you all that little stuff that's part of just being human. When we do something really wrong, you know, we might have spoken really harshly to our family or our friends, and hurt them. You know, you've done the wrong thing, and because of our pride, we try to cover it up. You know. you're still carrying that kind of cut inside you you're still bleeding about it you know you've done wrong and you know you've got to sort it out with the master of the universe because if you don't sort it out with him you won't find peace of mind because you're made to sort it out with him it's in our dna okay when you sin get on your hands and knees and ask god for forgiveness ask him for forgiveness And the moment you ask in your heart, forgiveness is given. Now, as Orthodox Christians, we also believe that confession in the presence of a priest brings grace. What you should then do as soon as you can is go to the priest, confess the sin. And in the act of confessing before another human person who is charged and ordained by God to pronounce forgiveness of sins, comes humility, the second part of forgiveness. Firstly, you repent, and then you humble yourself before your brethren. In the early church, and I'm glad we don't have this practice anymore, people would call out their sins in public. A lot of red faces, wouldn't they? It'd be horrible. And they'd pronounce, I don't know how that worked. I think they must have said, oh, oops, we could not do that anymore. Because it's just awful. Because you just start to judge everybody. Now, when the priest comes and puts the cross on you and pronounces forgiveness of sins, it's not that God hasn't forgiven you already. God forgave you on the cross. Don't you see? He died upon the cross for all our sins. Now, it's hard to understand, but that forgiveness is given. Even as, as, as it says in the Revelation, what does it say about the Lamb of God? That he was slain before the foundation of the world. In other words, Jesus was giving his life for us before we even of it. So the sin to God is a matter of sadness. But the forgiveness is already there. It's like you just have to cash in and take it. But the cashing has to be genuine, not just, oh, yeah, I'm forgiven. That doesn't work. It's got to be real repentance. And repentance means literally changing direction, turning around from one direction to another. And usually it's turning around from here to here, from self to God. And in that motion of turning around all of a sudden you realize here is already in here as well that god already dwells within us just we've ignored the god part and put him in the side pocket while we follow the lower way so it is possible but we should hasten to confession we should but don't be like some that want to go to confession almost every single day some will like that martin luther the great father of the protestant reformation went through a terrible time. He wanted to confess every day until his spiritual fathers in the monastery told him, look, you don't need to. But he couldn't work out how God could keep on forgiving his sins until he came across that wonderful verse in Romans, the just shall live by faith, and that I'm right with God, not according to my own works, but according to the righteousness of Christ. And that's true. But you can't take it for granted. You've got to work with God's grace in your own life. Okay, so there's some questions. Are there any more? No? Well, I believe that we will be meeting again in two weeks in which I will give a talk on another parable by willing. I'm enjoying these broadcasts and I hope there is some value to you and I hope that in reading the parables, which are after all, the essence of Christ's teaching, so Luke says, in fact, in the gospel, he never spoke to the crowds without using parables. And he, in fact, he even says, and I, should, I should read it here, and actually it's good for cops to remember this because we hear this all the time, prayer before the gospel. He says here, thank you, Father, uh, uh, Luke ten twenty-one. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise, that is the kingdom of God, and the understanding and reveal it to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And then turning his disciples, he said privately, he says this to us: you hear it every time we read the gospel at the raising of incense and in the mass. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. I tell you, many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and hear what you hear and did not hear it. And sometimes I think. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? We just mutter the prayer off? Well, it happens that way sometimes. But they are, in, our Coptic liturgy is so beautiful. The prayers are simply divine, written by the Holy Spirit, no doubt, quoting these words of Jesus. The mysteries of the kingdom of God is hidden from those who are wise. And indeed, it's straight after that that the story of the Good Samaritan is told as if the say, look he's a wise guy. He's a lawyer in the law of God. He should know better. So rejoice. God's revealed to us the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. God bless Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Over and out. Thank you. you Have you gone? Not yet. Go away. <laughs>